Brian Millsap, chairman and CEO of Atlanta-based Black Hall Studios, is one of today's top entertainment executives with a vision for Black Hall that's ambitious, energizing, and boundless. Millsap is blazing a trail through the heart of the South and setting his sights on the future of entertainment. Listen and learn as Ryan Millsap journeys through the myriad industries, people, and landscapes that traverse the complex and dynamic world of film production. I'm Ryan Millsap, host of the Black Hall Studios podcast from Atlanta, Georgia. I'm an entrepreneur, mostly by necessity because I have massive authority issues, and also by constitution as the entrepreneurial life is filled with things I love, freedom, adventure, creativity, and imagination. I built Black Hall Studios as a specialty real estate project for production giants like Disney, Sony, Warner Brothers, and Universal to have a place to apply their skilled craft of production. I've done business all over the world, and I know a few places with the dynamism of Atlanta. On this podcast, we get local and global and talk to people who are inspirational, sensational, sometimes motivational, but at all times somehow tied to the ecosystem that is the culture and business of entertainment as it relates to Black Hall Studios. Today, I'm hosting an old school radio guy, Mr. Bob Houghton. It just happened to evolve into one of the most important broadcasters in Georgia as president of the Georgia Association of Broadcasters. Bob didn't just start in radio. He was a sportscaster, and he's called his fair share of games over the years. He made the jump into television when he moved to Atlanta just prior to the Olympic Games in 1996. Bob learned early on that sales and advertising are the backbone of successful network affiliates. Bob commanded this arena in Chicago, New York, Minneapolis, Dallas, and finally here in Atlanta. Recently, Bob led the first live multi-network statewide town hall broadcast to address the unprecedented state of the state and the COVID-19 outbreak. Grab a cup of coffee, lean in and listen. Bob Houghton feels like an old friend, and I'm glad he's a new one of mine. Welcome to the Black Hall Podcast. I'm happy today to be talking to a unique guy, a guy who's a legend in the community, someone who's dedicated his life to creating accurate communication channels for the public, a quintessential newsman, and the president of the Georgia Association of Broadcasters, Mr. Bob Houghton. Bob, good morning. Thanks for joining me. Good morning, Ryan. Nice to be talking to you. Thanks for taking the time during this quarantine to jump on a call with us. Really appreciate it. Well, I just finished doing my workout, so it's a good thing we're not doing it on a video conference. God, I, you know, I'm not a big fan of the Zoom conferences. I, you know, I don't want to get ready. If I'm going to be home, let me, uh, let me be in my PJs or my sweat. Yeah, <laughs> we're, we're off to a good start. I completely agree with you. I think, uh, I think a year from now we'll be talking about the uh, virus, and we'll be saying, "What was that thing we were all so excited about? Zim, Zom, Zoom, whatever it was." I, 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 I think it's just too hot, too fast. Had anybody even heard the word Zoom for 30 days ago, you know, so, mm -hmm. but then I'm a stick in the mud sometimes. Well, maybe either that or you just have really good intuition because, you know, when people started inviting me to all these Zoom calls, I thought to myself, isn't this completely counterproductive to what we're trying to achieve in our quarantine state? But it is what it is. Where are you quarantining? I live in Dunwoody and I have a, a home office and so I'm set up here, but I am going in the office once, twice a week. I'm usually there by myself, 
So it's not like I'm uh, making a big wild statement by doing it, but somebody's got to pick up the mail, the checks, make sure some things get distributed and things like that. And uh, so I guess it's me. What kind of things are you seeing in this in this new world? How is your business changing? Let's talk about my members because that's really my business is my members. Yeah. And uh, yeah. what uh, what our stations are going through – of course, is unprecedented. That goes for any industry. But you just turn on, and I'm going to talk about TV, even though my background is radio and I'm a radio guy, but a lot of this will pertain to television, at least especially what we're talking about right now. You, you turn on any local newscast, any national newscast for that matter, and you're going to see three, four, five locations that all have to be technically supervised. And the, the people that are really working hard, yes, the people on the screen, that's awkward, and the people behind the screen, but the real doers are the technology people, the engineers that just have to be there and kind of monitoring five or six screens and keeping everything going. So this is an all hands on deck, and it's a very new experience. You know, you might be doing uh, live shots and things like that, but the idea of being on live remote locations from half a dozen places is uh, never been done before and probably not really been planned before. But it's working. It's working. It's working great. Uh, the, you know, every once in a while, people will stumble over each other and the, the, the delay, especially it seems like on the network programs. But in general, uh, you know, people are cooperating with each other and understanding it. And uh, I, I think from uh, it, it's something, the, the next question logically is to say how much of this stays in place afterwards. And the uh -huh. answer to that is no one really knows yet. Um, I think you'll see, you know, maybe some uh, new efficiencies of doing things that this allows. But uh, I think we're a people business. Uh, you and I were talking offline about other businesses that are people related. Well, broadcasting is certainly a people oriented business and people need to be with people. I think, to, uh, to to really effectively communicate and do their jobs. But there's no question there'll be more remote uh, business, and uh, maybe we'll see a, finally a, a way to uh, solve the Atlanta traffic problem. The, right now, the Atlanta traffic problem is being solved, so if we, can, if we just harness some of this, our freeways will stay empty, which is glorious when you're out there. It's amazing how fast you get places when the freeways aren't clogged. I was in the office the other day, and I walked out at 5 after 5, I would never have even ventured out at five after five uh, most afternoons, but then I was back home in you know 20 minutes or so. So you're right. It is a totally different world. But so I think that the business is, you know, the technology has allowed us to do things that, uh, that we wouldn't have been able to do before, you know, simple things like the phone being so active and able to you know, allow you to do remote. Uh, the idea that you can go out and, and shoot broadcast quality on a phone is just unbelievable. And, and at every bit, it, you can't tell the difference. And, you know, when the phone started being used like this a few years ago, it, it was like people didn't trust that you were really a, a journalist almost, like you're doing this interview on a phone and things like that. So, so things have changed a lot. You salute first the people that are doing this, but that the equipment they're using, the mobile equipment they're using has really made their jobs different. Well, I know you're a professor at UGA. Imagine I'm a 21-year-old junior who's decided that they want to go into broadcasting. Tell me, like, What's going on in the industry, and where's the opportunity for a young person? Well, I, I specialize in sports. I teach a class in sports broadcasting. So those people are uh, a little different than other journalists. But I'll just take the 30,000-feet view of the kids that are in journalism at the University of Georgia. Uh, the Grady College is 1,500 students, so, uh, so there's a lot of varieties and different programs there. But in general, 
they're still very dedicated to the proposition of going into journalism to uh, to to be to make the world a better place. There's still a lot of idealism in the students. Uh, one of the concerns I have is that a lot of the broadcasters, especially my sports guys, uh, they want to be on network TV or they want to be play-by-play -play on the radio. And you ask them how much of that they consume as individuals, and it sometimes isn't a great deal. So they need to really understand what they're getting into, how the television station works. You know, they're used to several different alternatives. They led the cord cutting and things like that. So that, that challenges me sometimes when they say they want to do it and then they don't watch it or listen to it. So that's one thing that we really stress is they need to get out. We give them an assignment every week that they have to watch either and it's, they have to watch football games or they have to watch the talk shows that are sports oriented or listen to them and, and report back on what they see and hear. And it's, it's, it's for a lot of reasons. It's to educate them, but it's also just to indoctrinate them into uh, the business they want to be in. This hasn't changed from when Bob Houghton went into sports too many years ago, almost 40 years ago. And, uh, and that's that they have a passion for sports and they all pretty much understand they're, uh, they're not going to start at the, at the top of the heap and that they have to go out. And in my case, I was in a small market doing high school sports for two years, two of the best years. I enjoyed the heck out of it, to be honest, but that you had to get the reps. You had to make your mistakes. And, and in sports, you pretty much have to start at the bottom. Now, I just had a student get hired at ESPN. She's a producer there. She interned there, and she's so good that they hired her. But most of the people are not starting at ESPN. They're starting at uh, my radio station was WWMM, which was a hard thing to say <laughs> then and still. So, uh, And that's where most people start. And, and they have to really be dedicated to want to go out move away from home, maybe stay two or three to a room or have a parent that can help them out because the, the first couple of years are really tough in any line of, uh, of, of television or radio, but especially sports. Well, obviously ESPN was really disruptive to the, the, the existing model when they rolled into the sports world. Where do you see as kind of the next disruptors or what's disrupting right now that you would see that the people that aren't in the center of this might not see? Well, I think everybody sees it. It's, it's mobile. It's uh, it's the different choices you make. Uh, this may show again my age, but I don't understand watching television on a cell phone when you can watch it on a 60-inch screen. Uh, but the but the mobility that uh, that we have now makes people uh, do that. Um, there's an awful lot of people that consume video on again on this small screen or maybe on their tablet, and and they're they're watching things uh, you know that way, and that's a huge change. Uh, uh, of course, the biggest change goes back 10 or 15 years ago when the sportscast used to, and television used to have three or four minutes of commercials in front of it because it was the most watched thing on, on the newscast, uh, and, and especially for that targeted male audience. Well, now there's, there's hardly a, there's a 90 second sportscast. It, everybody does not have to wait. They can go to their phones. They can go to ESPN. And, and those are the biggest changes is the immediacy of being able to get the news when it comes. And then I think the, the video coverage of it, you know, people watching the 10, 15, 20 second videos of something, the great dunk, the home run, the catch, you know, that type of thing. So that's the biggest change. And quite honestly, my students are pretty good at it. You know, I teach this class and I emphasize the play-by-play, -play, but we also have a part of the class that's on the field doing videos, doing the type of thing that they would probably be showing on the, uh, here, the 11:30 news on Friday night where they're doing all those sports highlights. And they're out there, that's their natural habitat. 
they're a little struggling when they do play-by-play for the first time, but you put a phone in front of them and let them go down and cover a story, they're going to come back with a, with a pretty good story right off the bat. So that's the type of thing that we're teaching in the class, traditional media along with the new media. What kind of philosophy are you teaching? Like, like how are you weaving in um, a journalistic ethics or a journalistic understanding of the world? I mean, what what are some of those principles that you think are so important and, and, and maybe present and maybe not present in today's journalistic society? Well, that, that, that's a great question. And I'm going to, I'm going to try to take the high road, although I am prepared to, to talk about my alma mater at Northwestern and the, the fiasco they had this fall, which was just the opposite of this. But we, uh, uh, the head of our department is, uh, uh, who's also a Northwestern grad, is a stickler for this type of thing. And, and it starts with uh, doing your homework. Uh, we insist that the, most of the games we do are about 30 miles away from the university, and our students have to go out and interview the coaches, try to get the players, a little more difficult in high school, uh, very difficult when you see that getting the home team is easy, getting the road team sometimes is a little bit. So the first thing and foremost is doing your homework, checking your facts, and uh, and being prepared with, with that type of thing. But fact checking is still very important. In sports, I think you're allowed a little bit more opinion than you would be if you were doing a newscast. Um, but I think the, the first thing is preparation. The second thing is uh, is just uh, uh, making sure that you've covered as many of the stories as you can. We, we tell everybody, and boy, did this come true last fall, that you have to be prepared for blowouts. You have to be prepared for rain delays. We had two rain delays last year where if it lightnings anywhere and within a few miles of the stadium they pull everybody out of the stadium and then we've got to we've got to talk or you know, we don't if it's an hour delay we don't do that but uh, so you have to be prepared to talk about uh, more than just the game you, you have to have an hour's worth of work and you might get 10 I mean, of, of copy and you might get 10 minutes of that in the broadcast and of course if it's a good game you might even get less than that so uh, so you're prepared to fill in as much as you have to, but know that the action should hopefully cover most of it. But I think those are some of the basics. Be prepared, have more than you need, and, and then eventually we're going to get into uh, the repetition. And again, I'm not trying to talk about myself here, but when, when I started, and it was a tape recorder, not a phone, not as easy as it is now, I would go up to uh, a Major League Baseball game and in Baltimore and sit in the football press box and do games into a tape recorder. I'm guessing I might have done 50 games before I ever did my first on-air broadcast. And uh, that's something that uh, that they need to do more of. They've got to practice. They've got to do the reps. Uh, if they're going to be ready to, to do the job. Yeah, sometimes the only way to learn is to fail. I've been having this conversation uh, in our quarantine life with my daughters. We've been playing chess. And I've been telling them to say, you know, this is just like any other sport or, or new activity where you have to put your ego aside and you have to be willing to lose. And losing and ma- making mistakes and having failure is how you then actually learn. It's difficult for people to do the things that they don't feel like they're naturally good at or that they're failing at. You could not be more right. I 100% agree with you. And that's one of the problems in our industry you know, particularly on the radio side. Uh, you know, I mentioned I was at a small station and uh, I was selling during the daytime, but I was doing my sports at night and uh, maybe I wasn't as good as I thought I was. And I, I made a lot of mistakes. 
the key word is I was doing that at night. I was doing that on the weekends. And an awful lot of the broadcasters now, they're doing national programs or they're doing uh, what they call voice tracking. And, and there isn't as many places to make mistakes. And boy, I couldn't agree with you more. The more mistakes you, know, you make when it's not a, a big expensive mistake, the, the better off you're going to be. And you, it gives you more confidence that you can overcome that type of thing. Uh, you're giving your daughters very good advice. They're teaching me right back. The other day I was playing my 13-year-old. And I made a, a a blunder. I got a little too aggressive with my queen. She takes my queen, and then I spend the rest of the game like just getting my tail handed to me. And <laughs> it, you know, but it, it's easy to get lulled into complacency. And so the only way to to not do that is to get the reps, like what you're talking about. So kids who are 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 loving journalism. What are some of the characteristics of those students that you see in what draws them in? what what makes them really successful long-term who are those people well you're a coach uh, and you're picking a team you're like for sure as a professor you see those kids walk in and over the course of a semester you go that one's going to do great that one's going to do great right you can start to pick the team tell me about some yeah there's no question about it and uh, one of the things at the university of georgia they had to get into the University of Georgia first, which, as we all know, is not an easy thing to do these days with the Hope Scholarship. Uh, secondly, then they've got to get selected into the Grady School of Journalism, and that is not easy to do. And then thirdly, they've got to get accepted into uh, uh, the, the sports certificate program. So they've had three times where they've been picked and patted on the head and said, you're good. You got into this university, you got into this uh, journalism school, you got into this program. And if I can say so, there's a demand for the class. So you got into this class. So a lot of them come in with a cockiness that uh, sometimes needs to be knocked out of them. What I have found is, and I'm just closing my eyes and seeing one young man in particular, he had more talent than most of the students had come through the class. And we finally just had to say, you know, if you're not going to be a team player, if you're not going to go out and be, you know, the, the, the assistant producer on this show and have a team attitude, you're not going to do play-by-play again. And that kid now has paid more dues than I think he's deserved to pay, but he stayed with it. And I think it had a lot to do with sitting down and, and chatting with him. But, but what I have found over the last couple of years is the best talent in the class is also the leader of the class. These kids come in, they, they, they've got a way about them on, on, on the play-by-play, and yet they're great team players. Uh, this lady that got hired at ESPN, she was a producer, not really on the air, but she was just a tremendous team player. So I think that's very important to be successful in a broadcast because, you know, when you're watching particularly a sports play-by-play broadcast, there, there, there's dozens of people behind the scenes and you're only as good as that team so they've got to learn that team attitude and the the good ones really do so if there's somebody in the class that doesn't want to cooperate doesn't want to be a team player only wants to do what they he or she specializes in uh, they're going to find a big jolt when they get out in reality so when you were growing up how old were you when you started getting interested in journalism and when did you start to get a vision for this I was a late bloomer. I cannot tell you how many times I did play-by-play. I was an only child, so I had to amuse myself. I would do play-by-play when I was uh, playing uh, in my yard, when I was doing games in the house. So I guess I was getting some practice at a very early age. But uh, I really didn't get involved in it until uh, after college and after uh, serving four years in the Navy. And I started doing some stuff with Armed Forces. That when I, that's when I started doing these games into the tape recorder in Baltimore 
driving over from Washington. So I didn't get into it till very late. And sometimes I regret that, but I also think I might have burned out if I had started earlier. So, uh, so it started out just doing a lot of games into a tape recorder, doing high school sports. I, I think the best thing I did do um, is uh, I ended up doing the play-by-play of DePaul University in Chicago. And uh, I got to do it because they weren't very good at the time. And while I was there, they all of a sudden went from a, a team that was struggling to even stay Division One to playing in the tournament back when it was a 40-team tournament and uh, almost beating UCLA on national TV. Uh, there also the uh, trivia question as to who was one of the other teams when Magic and uh, Bird were in the uh, were in the Final Four. DePaul was one of the other four teams in that tournament. So I got a chance to do uh, play-by-play at the highest level uh, from a very humble beginning. Uh, but then I went to the sales side and been on the business side most of my career. Um, but I get my fill of getting to do occasional play-by-play and teaching this class really gives me a chance to fill my cup. Yeah, talking to you, you're, it, it sounds to me, and I might be wrong, but it sounds like you are from somewhere around Lake Michigan, or at least the north. Is that true? I am a Chicago, Illinois guy. Very proud of that. Uh, don't like the weather too much, so I probably won't ever live there again, but uh, Chicago is home. How'd you end up in the south? I was with CBS for 16 years, and I went from Chicago to New York, back to Chicago, to Minneapolis, Dallas, back to Chicago. Um, and I thought I was going to be made a general manager within the CBS organization. They seemed to be grooming me for that. But uh, there were just a couple of times where I didn't get the call. And all of a sudden, uh, this small company in uh, Atlanta, Georgia called me. And uh, they had just gotten the Atlanta Braves. And uh, they had uh, the Atlanta Hawks and Georgia Tech. And, and then they were also news, which is my real strength, uh, is news radio. So I came down here to run WGST in the early 90s, and that's how I got here. And I always have to say that's when WGST was beating WSB, which people would just find hard to believe today. But we had Neil Bortz. We were one of the first Rush Limbaugh stations. We had the Braves. Uh, we had Sean Hannity after Bortz left. So we, we had some really great four years, while, and that's what brought me down here. And And then – I had a, a child that had been in three different preschools, and we decided we'd better settle down, and she went to the same school for 13 years. So so that's uh, so that's how we, we got here, and that's why we stayed here. Did, did you bring a wife, or did you find a wife here? Oh, no. Uh, I've been married uh, 42 years. That, that's being tested a little bit now with this work at home, however. <laughs> you haven't spent this much time in the same place for a long time, probably. That, that is correct. Is it just the two of you quarantining, or you have a, you have more more than just the two of you? No, just them and our dog. Our, our daughter is uh, um, she works for the Grand Hyatt here in Buckhead, and uh, as the sales manager, local sales manager. And uh, uh, the last day she worked, there were five people in the hotel, so she's uh, furloughed from the Hyatt. It's a great company, and uh, you know we hope she'll be back doing that. But she's uh, living in uh, the Buckhead area uh, right now, and just. Uh, waiting for the, the business to reopen. Well, you, you've you've seen a lot of change in Georgia, Atlanta, how all the broadcasters work together and just all of the, the life here, especially post-Olympics, what's, what way this place has exploded. Share with me a little bit about what you see in, in the broadcast community, how, how people are coming together in this time of crisis, how the broadcast community is helping out and, and the roles they're playing in this you know, COVID-19 era. We we got a long time. I hope we, we can let the tape run for a while because I couldn't be prouder oh, yeah. 
my motto is uh, it's a great day to be a broadcaster in Georgia. And that has never been more true than the last 40 days. I want to talk specifically about the town hall in just a second. But uh, in general, uh, what we do, and, uh, and, and, and let me preface my remarks by saying we're hurting. Uh, business is down 50, 60 percent. Radio, it may be down more. We are now very much expecting, I mentioned that we're on several phone calls right now with our elected officials uh, in, in Washington looking to get uh, be included. We've been declared an essential business, which we are, and uh, but uh, we need some financial support. So we're doing this with uh, less people and a heck of a lot less money, and, and we're not even thinking about that right now. So we're out there producing, you know, 10, 11, 12 hours of live programming every day. And then all of a sudden comes along a, a severe storm where unfortunately eight people in Georgia died and 30 people in the South died and it hit in the middle of the night. And we were there as we always are when there's an emergency before warning the people as I think we did a great job on Sunday of telling people something was coming. Uh, being there during the storm, I actually listened and watched WSB television on the radio and, uh, and heard streets that I that my lake my new house that I'm building are on you know the the route into Lake Oconee they are mentioning side streets to get there by name when the tornado went through and of course they got hit pretty bad but the point is that we were there before warning people we were there during telling them and then we're there afterwards uh talking about the story uh, and providing uh, public service announcements where you can go if your house was damaged. Um, over the years, we've, we've organized huge drives for food, water, et cetera, to, to, to help care of people. So we say that we do that when there was an emergency, we're there before, during, and after the storm. And, uh, and the Weather Channel may come in, CNN may come in, but they don't live here, they don't work here, and they're gone as soon as the uh, the story's over. So we live here, we work here, and we're going to be covering the story uh, extremely well, and that's one of the things we do. So um, I think the biggest thing is under strong duress, financial duress, weariness of the staff duress, we are performing at a level that we never performed at before, and I couldn't be prouder. Uh, if I can continue because I am. Please, yeah, tell me about the town hall, because I, I heard yeah, really great yeah. things about what, what went on there. Well, it might be the proudest moment of my broadcast career to say I was part of this. We got the governor called, um, and I'm going to name by name, uh, Ray Carter, who's the general manager at uh, WSB, and asked Ray to produce a town hall for him. And Ray did something that is, it would have been unheard of before. He said, Governor, I need the help of all my other stations. And uh, they said, okay. So we put together a, a coalition of the major stations, the, the new stations in Atlanta. If you saw the show, and 1.2 million people did see that show that night, we uh, were very proud of th those figures as well. Uh, we had the governor in one studio, we had the mayor in the other, in another studio, we had the head of the task force in another location, we had the head of GEMA in another location, and we also had the head of insurance, who also is a general in the Georgia Army National Guard, who was called up and also speaks Spanish. So we had, we also had Univision and uh, Telemundo involved. So we had the four major news stations that you're familiar with, the two Hispanic stations, and Georgia Public Broadcasting all coming together to create this live locations from five different places, uh, a, a foreign language element to it. So then where I got involved was to say, well, this has to go to the state. We just can't have this be in Georgia. We had every 
television station in the state that the network affiliate except one and they wanted to be there but they had a technical issue that just didn't allow them to take the broadcast we had nearly 200 radio stations around the uh, around the state uh, carrying the broadcast so when i say 1.2 million that was just the tv audience we had a lot more uh, people involved and then we also streamed it and, and that got a tremendous uh, response as well c-span picked it up and uh, so it gave us a national audience that the broadcast was high quality, informative, and uh, bipartisan. And the collaboration between the Atlanta broadcasters uh, was just unparalleled. And how quickly, um, you know, the governor called and asked us to do it. Uh, we met within two hours and uh, agreed to do it. And then uh, it took a couple of days to get everything worked out. So by the time they finally gave us the go ahead, that was Tuesday. And we had already decided to do the show on Thursday. Now, we'd done some prep, but basically we had to put that whole show together in two days. And the work that the engineers did, the work that the news people did, and the work that the talent did was uh, second to none. I take no credit for any of that. My job was to get the rest of the state covered. You know, at 9.01 that night, uh, I was very, very proud and continue to be proud of the effort we did and what the broadcasters around the state demonstrated what they do every day, and that's to serve their citizens. And just one last thing. You know, that I just really need to remind people, we are not that thing that comes out of the box with Fox News or CNN or those type of things. We are live local radio and television stations. We live and work in the same neighborhood as our audiences. And I cannot tell you how important that is and how different that makes us than those national talking heads. Well, you're local, your community, you know, you're integrated into the fabric of the local society, which is you know, the society telling stories about itself to each other. Couldn't say it better. That's exactly right. We're out of time, but I, I want to ask you one last question, which is imagine, you know, imagine I could give you a, a, a magic wand and you could wave it and you could see broadcast journalism transformed in, in obviously realistic ways, you know, not like totally magical ways, but what are what are one or two things that you would love to see transformed in broadcast journalism over the over the coming years? We're, we're under a little bit of a test right now for the trust of local broadcasting. And it's not, it, it's not worth getting tired by the brush of national. That's why I got a little passionate there. So we have to continually earn the trust of our audience. And we do that, I think, by just doing what we do better every day. Uh, I did want to point out it, that, that this is the 100th anniversary of radio, so therefore it's the 100th anniversary of broadcasting, and we as an industry are very excited to recognize our past, but we're looking forward to the future, and, and so I, I think the technology, the technology is our friend. Again, I'm primarily a radio guy growing up, and now we can do photos, video, text, uh, and by text I mean print. We can do all those things. We're not just limited. Now, I happen to think that the theater of the mind and audio storytelling is an art and it's a tremendous skill, but it's nice to have those other things. So we're, we're not threatened by technology. We endorse and embrace technology. So I think that the future, to answer your question as best as I can, will just be who would have thought there would be a mobile phone doing everything that it does now? Who would have thought that the things that we now take for granted, our future and our success is tied to what happens in technology and the, and the tools that come along that we will use and innovate ourselves and reinvent ourselves like we have done for the last hundred years. Bob, thank you for joining us on the, on the podcast today. I really appreciate you taking the time and stay safe out there. 
Thank you. I, I really enjoyed talking to you, and uh, and I look forward to someday meeting you. I, I look forward to it as well. When we get out of this quarantine, we'll have we'll uh, we'll do drinks or coffee. That that sounds very good. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you. I'll leave you guys with thoughts, which are reflections that I write on Instagram. Sometimes people are far more broken than you ever realized. Sometimes only good information flow reveals the truth. Truth can be very sad, but the truth will set us free. This has been the Black Hall Studios podcast, recording from quarantine in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm Ryan Millsap, chairman and CEO. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Black Hall Studios podcast with Ryan Millsap. We want to hear from you. Find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Spotify. And follow us on Instagram at at Black Hall Studios and at Ryan.Millsap.